The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 3. You heard Damien just read verses 14 through 22 as we finish up this morning the last of the letters to the seven churches. And for me personally, I come, and I think all of us should come, with a certain sense of fear and trembling to this, the final letter, the worst, in many ways, arguably, I think, the worst of the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Honestly, of all of the letters to the seven churches, this one terrifies me the most as pastor of this church. Many godly leaders say that there is a spiritual disease, a contagious blight that is working its way through or spreading its way through the Lord's orchard of the churches in America. They say that the Laodicean church captures what has happened to so many churches in the West and in America. John Stott, in commenting on this, puts it this way. Perhaps none of the seven churches is more appropriate to the 20th century church, I would add now the 21st century church, than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion, end quote. So we're talking about nominalism, nominal Christianity, lukewarmness, a a tepid pattern of religion in which outward forms are maintained without any real power, going through the motions, checking the God box through outward observances while denying the life-changing, transforming power that genuine faith in Christ produces. What makes matters for me even more terrifying, the cause in Laodicea of their lukewarmness, at least in some way, is linked to their wealth. It's linked to their prosperity, resulting in spiritual complacency. The lukewarmness of the church at Laodicea was nauseating to Christ. And it should terrify us out of any spiritual complacency That's in our lives. It should make us cry out to God against ourselves. To plead with God to save us from Laodicean lukewarmness. Jonathan Edwards wrote many great theological works. But none has affected me so profoundly as his classic treatise on religious affections. Now he was writing in a context to defend the powerful effects of the first great awakening. A revival of religion from its cultured critics. There were church leaders who were denigrating the outward manifestations of the revival, such as outcries, shouts of joy, physical effects of the preaching and the ministry of the word on sinners who were being moved and affected by what they were hearing. Some of these folks were genuinely converted by the fiery gospel that was being preached by by Whitfield and Tennant and Edwards and other preachers. They were preaching the gospel of the new birth, the genuine gospel. And people were genuinely being converted. But their, their state was affecting them, themselves and, that, and it was outwardly visible 
and these cultured, aristocratic church leaders were criticizing what they called enthusiasm. That was a bad thing back then. Overwhelming displays of bitter sorrow over sin or, or the terror that they felt at the coming wrath of God. Or soaring joy over assurance of salvation that your sins are genuinely forgiven and that you're now in a right relationship with God and that that re- uh, resulted in joy. And these things had physical effects on the bodies of the people that were hearing them. They were showing them. And so these critics were negative about that. The critics had never experienced, I think, any of this before. And they stood on the outside and bitterly criticized it, preachers of the awakening for their excesses. So Edwards wrote, Treatise on Religious Affections. It was timeless. It stands powerfully. In connection, I think, with Christ's nausea over Laodicean lukewarmness. Edwards wrote this, True Christianity consists in a great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul or the fervent exercises of the heart. True Christianity is lively and fervent. That's what he's saying. That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes. Raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in his word greatly insists upon it that we be good in earnest, that we be fervent in spirit, that our hearts be vigorously engaged in religion. Romans 12, 11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Edward says, if we are not in good earnest in religion and our wills and inclinations be not strongly exercised, we are nothing. The things of religion are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercises of our hearts to their nature and importance unless they be lively and powerful. In nothing is vigor and in the actings of our inclinations so required as in religion. And in nothing is lukewarmness so odious. That's hateful. True religion is evermore a powerful thing, and the power of it appears in the first place in the inward exercises of the human heart. End quote. Thus, Edwards felt in preaching it was his job, his required, uh, it was required of him that he should do everything he could to raise the affections of his hearers as high as possibly as he could concerning these things. He wanted to raise the love and the passion of his hearers as high as he could. In a sermon that he preached on the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. As so many commentators on the Song of Solomon tended to do, not just talking about marital relations between a husband and wife, but tended to lift it up in the spiritual realm and the analogy of Christ and his church to talk about passion with God. And he drew out the following doctrine. Persons need not and ought not to set any boundaries to their spiritual and gracious appetites. In other words, there's no such thing as spiritual gluttony. Eat and drink and be drunk with love, dear friends. That's what the text says. So don't set limits, don't set boundaries to your appetites when it comes to Christ. Rather, he says, they ought to be endeavoring by all possible ways to inflame their desires and obtain more spiritual pleasures. Our hungerings and thirstings after God and Jesus Christ and after holiness can't be too great for the value of these things, for they are of infinite value. Therefore, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. 
It's a very interesting statement. Put your heart in the path of enticement. If you're feeling distant and cold, be allured, be enticed. That's what he's saying. There is no such thing as excess in our taking of spiritual food. There is no such virtue in moderation when it comes to spiritual feasting. So this morning, I want to challenge you to feed your zeal and your appetite for Christ. Feed the fire, brothers and sisters. Feed the fire. This is the sermon in a nutshell. The Laodicean lukewarmness caused by prosperity and spiritual complacency is deadly. It should make us tremble at the affluence and comfort of our American lifestyle. So this morning, we're going to look at the final letter of Christ to the seven churches. With God's help, we trust that the Lord Jesus will work this warning into us. It will heed his warning, heed his counsel, obey his commands, and drink in both now and in eternity the sweet rewards that he promises. So just to set a little context, these first three chapters of the book of Revelation set up the whole, the whole book for us. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John in exile on the island of Patmos has a vision on the Lord's Day of the resurrected, glorified Christ who's dressed like a high priest in a white robe reaching down to his feet. And he's moving through seven golden lampstands, which I picture to be about f- like floor lamps about chest high. And he's moving through and they're, and they're, they're alight. And he is trimming the wicks and he's working in the fires. He's tending the seven golden lampstands. And we're told that these lampstands represent seven local churches that literally existed back then in Asia Minor. But the number seven being the number of perfection... Uh, it gives us a sense of Jesus' active daily ministry in local churches all over the world. That he cares about local churches. He's ministering as our great high priest. Then he writes in Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters, one to each of those seven churches. They were actual letters to literal churches that lived back then. But then cumulatively, they speak a message to all of the churches that would come in the 1920 centuries that would follow. And at the end of each one of them, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're supposed to take in the cumulative effect of these seven letters. And we've come to the last one today. We're supposed to to heed these warnings. We're supposed to drink them in. Jesus spoke these words 20 centuries ago to a specific church in Laodicea at a specific moment in time. But through the Spirit, he speaks now to us. By the ministry of the word and by the spirit, he speaks now. As it says in Hebrews 3, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So we're supposed to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. We're supposed to hear. And we should come to these seven uh, letters and to this seventh letter with great humility because we need more grace. He gives us more grace. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we we should read with an ear to hear ways we need to grow in grace. Ways that we are weak and and ways that we are sinning and deficient. Even if the the, the Lord would speak a word of encouragement to us, we would only hear it honestly as a word of exhortation. You're doing this, yet we urge you to do it more and more. So that's how we should come to these seven letters. Like, oh God, speak to me. And if Christ should speak a stern word of warning to a church back then, as he does here then we should be humble and realize that we have the same sin nature they did. We're under the same pressures they were. We have the same challenges facing us. We should humble ourselves. And it says in Isaiah 66 too, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. This word should make us tremble. Woe to any of us to say that spiritual lukewarmness could never happen to me. Or First Baptist Durham could never become a Laodicean church. Woe to us 
We are well on our way to becoming so if we say that. So in many ways, this letter to the church at Laodicea is the scariest of them all. Christ speaks not a single word of encouragement to this church. Doesn't say anything good about them at all. John MacArthur believes that there's strong evidence in verse 20, depends how you read verse 20, that there was not a single born-again person within the walls of the church. So Jesus is on the outside looking for anybody, somebody, who might open the door. He's on the outside of the church. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a very bad situation. So, how does the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, the one walking through the seven golden lampstands, like our great high priest, ministering to the seven churches, how does he describe himself in this final letter? Look at verse 14. He says, To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, or the source of God's creation. Different ways to translate it. First he calls himself the Amen. We tend to speak this word at the end of all of our prayers. Maybe even thoughtlessly. We just That's what you say. To let the people around you know that you're done praying. That, that, that's how you know you're done when you hear Amen. Uh, but actually the word uh, means, it's related to the Hebrew word for standing, but it came to relate to truth. It's a sense of truth. And so uh, in Deuteronomy 27, when the blessings and curses of the Old Covenant were read, the people were supposed to say amen at the end of each of them. It means truly. Like when Jesus would say truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you in the King James, that's amen, amen in the, in the Hebrew or in the Greek. So it's, it's a Hebrew word. The people of God speak amen in the New Testament whenever we hear something powerfully true and we want to assent to it. Amen. And so at the beginning and the end of this very book, Revelation, we have it in like Revelation 1-7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And then John mixes in, so shall it be, Amen. In other words, I want that to happen. The second coming, I want that to happen. Then at the end of the book, in Revelation twenty-two twenty, we get the same message. He who testifies to these things, Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. Then John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the final verse of the entire Bible, Revelation twenty-two twenty-one, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So now you know the last word in the Bible. The last word in the Bible is amen. That's John saying amen. May God's grace be to the people. So if Jesus is God's amen, then he really is God's final word to the human race. The word of truth. Jesus speaks only the truth, for he is the truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Beyond that, Jesus is effectively the amen that God speaks to all of the promises and all of the truth of the old covenant. 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. In Christ, all of the promises of God find their fulfillment. In effect, Jesus is saying amen for us to all the promises of God. He also says he's the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true. So he testifies to his churches what is true, and we must hear him as he speaks. And he is faithful. He is faithful first and foremost vertically to God, to his Father. He was faithful in everything God entrusted him to him. Faithful to God, but also faithful to us. He loves us. He is our faithful high priest. And he is the beginning of the creation of God. This phrase comes, causes some trouble because it seems to say that Christ is a created being. The Jehovah's Witnesses have run with that false doctrine for a long time. 
that Jesus is the first of God's creations. It's just the old Arian controversy, the heresy. There was when he was not. There was a time he didn't exist and then God created Jesus. That is a heresy. And then that's not what it's saying here. Jesus is effectively calling himself the originator or the source of all of God's creation. Paul makes this awesome point clear in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So I think he's saying the same thing here. He's the source of everything. So if I can just break off and just give you an application. We're talking about lukewarmness. Can I just tell you, lukewarmness is essentially cured by drinking in the greatness of the person of Christ. Just drink in how great Christ is. I just want you to picture what it must have been like. We recently celebrated Easter Sunday. But being in the upper room with the other apostles, and Jesus comes in through the locked doors and shows his hands and his side, his his nail marks, and he says, peace be with you. How could you possibly be indifferent and lukewarm at that moment? So the more you just drink in the person and the achievements of Christ, the more that lukewarmness is banished. I'm going to say more at the end of the sermon about root causes and the cure of spiritual lukewarmness, but just... I think the central cause is failing to esteem Christ as the radiant, majestic Lord of the universe and your Savior. It's a failure to see the beauty of Christ, His glory, His person high above the heavens. Failure to see Him as the source of all creation. So, the remedy must be to read these words, let them soak into you. And then Jesus is about to give His church a a clear diagnosis and prescribe a powerful therapy. So, rescue from lukewarmness comes from Christ-centeredness. Go to Christ. All right, so how does Christ diagnose this church? He calls them lukewarm, poor, pitiful, blind, naked. This church at Laodicea geographically was close to Colossae, to whom Paul wrote the letter I just mentioned a moment ago, Colossians. It was located in the Lycus Valley, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was the southernmost of the seven churches, about 40 miles from Philadelphia. Laodicea was physically difficult, maybe even impregnable to direct assault because it was built on a wide plateau several hundred feet high up off of the the valley floor. However, it was vulnerable to siege because it had had to pipe in its water, the water for the city, by aqueducts from several miles away which could easily be severed by an invading force. And then you're cut off from the water supply and it's easy to, to conquer at that point. Three aspects of Laodicea that are noteworthy. Money, wool, and eye medicine. First, money. Laodicea was strategically located in terms of commerce and trade. It stood at the junction of two important highways. There was an east-west road leading from Ephesus to the interior of Asia Minor. And then there was a north-south road going from Pergamum down to the Mediterranean Sea. And they crossed there at Laodicea. Therefore, it was actually a powerfully wealthy center of finance, of banking, As a matter of fact, it was so wealthy that when the earthquake that I've mentioned in terms of some of these other cities came and Rome offered to help rebuild financially, they rejected. They didn't need any money from Rome. They had plenty of money to rebuild their city, so they're very wealthy. Secondly, wool. Laodicea was was famous for soft, glossy black wool, which was woven into carpets and, and it was used for luxurious black clothing. Again, a huge source of revenue. Thirdly, eye medicine or salve, 
like an ointment. They were known for a Phrygian ointment that was known actually throughout the Roman world. And this eye salve was useful in, in curing certain eye diseases. And people came from all over the world to get the eye treatment or they sent for the salve. So these three industry, industries, finance, wool, and eye salve, are going to come directly into play in Christ's stern wor- words to this church. Now look at his diagnosis in verses 15 through 17. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So he begins with the statement, I know your deeds. He's about to talk about their heart condition of lukewarmness, but he starts with their deeds. And this is just a regular pattern. By their fruit, you'll know them. Make a tree good, its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. So he talks about their deeds. Now, I just have thought about what, what is this whole lukewarmness? What are we talking about? I've, I've been led again and again to the word nominalism. <clears throat> Excuse me. What is the essence of nominalism? It's assenting to the right doctrine. But there's no corresponding actions or heart passion. There's no passion and there's no sacrificial action. That's nominalism. So you're going to sign off on Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, 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 that's all true. But there's just nothing going on in your heart. And there's no sacrificial action. So Jesus actually starts with the actions. He said, I know your deeds. I see what you do. You're lukewarm. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of your mouth. Now, some scholars, some preachers tend to do this. They go back to the Laodicean water thing and they talk about the hot steam baths and they talk about the cold water. And Jared Sneed and I and some others were talking this morning. He said a South Carolina preacher preached it in terms of tea. Like, I like hot tea. My wife loves hot tea. I like sweet tea. I like cold tea. No one likes lukewarm tea, just like Chris was saying. I don't think they have any lukewarm drinks. I am not going that direction, friends. I am not doing that. That's not what I'm doing. Why is it not what I'm doing? Well, he's speaking metaphorically. This is like a parable or a metaphor of of what? He's not talking about wine and milk and water, different drinks like in Isaiah 55. That's, it's all the same drink. It all has to do then with temperature. So what is the essence of the temperature? Hot, lukewarm, cold. And for me, the heat has always referred to zeal or passion, fire or ardor, love for the Lord. And, this, and for me, the censure is like, how can I as a pastor say, okay, let's get up out of the metaphor. I'm not going to exhort you. I want to exhort you to be hot for Jesus. Or I want to exhort if you'd rather be cold for... All right, stop right there. How can I exhort you to be cold for Jesus? Pastor, I want to be cold for Jesus. What should I do? I want to be refreshing to Jesus. Can I tell you what will refresh him? If you earnestly love him with all your heart. But now you're starting to sound like passion again. So cold is bad. So 
are there verses that support this? Not, a, not many. Surprisingly, there's not a ton of fire and burning verses that talk about ardor of heart. But the overall press of the scripture then tends to talk about that type of heat or ardor, usually wrath or anger in God. But our God is a passionate being. And he, when he's on fire, he's motivated. He is zealous, that kind of thing. But there are some. For example, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember when Jesus opens the scripture up to them and, they, and after he goes, he said, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? Burning within us. Or then John the Baptist, Jesus says of him, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his burning light. Or even Jesus in Psalm 69, 9 Zeal for your house has burned me up. There's a burning zeal for the house of God or has consumed me. Or the verse we've already quoted, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Conversely, coldness is generally thought of as bad, negative. And a clear example of this is in Matthew 24, 12. Jesus talks about the end times and he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So how can I exhort you to grow cold? That's a bad thing. Well, then you're, you're saying, well, then why is it better to be cold than lukewarm? I don't know that. How does that make sense? Well, I think honestly, that's, that's a difficult thing to say. But I think a cold person is dead in their transgressions and since they're unconverted. And they know it. Or at least they've never had the gospel preached to them. They're definitely on the outside and they know they're on the outside. They're cold, they're dead, etc. All right, again, why is that better than being lukewarm? Well, a parallel verse for me is 2 Peter 2.21. And there Peter is talking about people who go into a self-indulgent, you know, grace as license type of Christianity under these false teachers that are feasting and reveling and getting drunk and sexually immoral. And, and Peter's like, that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. And then he says this, 2 Peter 2.21, it would have been better for you not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn your backs on the sacred command that was passed on to you. Of them the proverb is true, the dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. You're still a dog, you're still a pig. And the gospel didn't change you, but now you're in real trouble because you heard the true gospel, and it had no effect on you. And it would have been better if you had never heard it than to have it do this in your life. It's the same reasoning here. Better to be cold than lukewarm. John MacArthur says this, smug, self-righteous hypocrites are far more difficult to reach with the gospel than cold-hearted rejectors. The rejectors may at least be shown that they are lost. But those who self-righteously think that they are saved are often protective of their religious feelings and unwilling to recognize their real condition. They are not cold enough to feel the bitter sting of their sin. Consequently, no one is further from the truth than the one who makes an idle profession of Christ but never experiences genuine saving faith. No one is harder to reach than a false Christian. Now we need to know, like even geographically, we are down here in the Bible Belt. How much of this, how much is this a problem in this whole region where there's been revivals in the past and many churches exploding and all that, and then people just start to do the machinery of seemingly evangelical Christianity, but there's no real power there. It's a warning for all of us. And so Christ finds them nauseating and he says he will vomit them out of his mouth. The Greek word is like the word for emetic. He's going to vomit them. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you. Nominal Christianity then is utterly repulsive to Christ. 
And in verse 17, their self-assessment is incredibly wrong. This is the danger here. Is that you're evaluating yourself and you're saying, well, I'm not, that's not me. I'm fine. Look at their self-assessment in verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the cause of their spiritual lethargy was, as I've said, their material wealth. They were a wealthy city. They were wealthy people. And that wealth had made them complacent. Look at this statement. And any biblical Christian will read this with recoiling and horror. I don't need anything from Jesus. Can you imagine saying that? I don't need anything from God. I'm fine. Like the Proverbs says, the wealth of the wealthy is like a strong tower and in it they imagine they're safe. So there's a sense of safety or security to the wealth. So I don't need anything. We're doing fine. But they forget another image that Jesus gives in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And frankly, the more you grow into spiritual maturity, the more vigorously you grow, the more you're going to feel that acutely. I can't do anything today without Jesus. I need him. I must have him in the center of my day. I've got to have him in the center of my life. I can't do anything. I know I can do something apart from Jesus called sin. I can do that. I've proven that. I don't want to sin. I want to be close. So if I'm going to do anything that the Lord delights in, I have to abide in Jesus for, apart from him, I can do nothing. But here these Laodiceans are saying, I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. It's a great danger in America as well. Overwhelming prosperity. Such as the Christian world has never seen in history. Evangelical people, incredibly wealthy. Widespread scale unprecedented in church history. And and it's dangerous. Instead... Jesus gives them their real condition. The amen, the faithful and true witness, is about to sit down with them like an oncologist, like a physician, say, I have the results of your tests and I need to talk to you. Your blood work is back. Your MRI is back. Ultrasound is back. X-ray, we got it all. I need to talk to you. You do not realize. You may feel fine, but you do not realize that. And then come the words, the diagnosis. It would be only a fool that would not listen to that diagnosis. What does he say? Well, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I don't think you can say those words over genuinely born-again people. First of all, they're wretched and pitiful. They're not to be envied, they're to be pitied. Like a a homeless beggar shivering out in a blizzard. They're they're wretched and pitiable. And and they're they're poor. They actually are, are impoverished though they are materially wealthy. It's exactly the opposite of the church at Smyrna. Remember the persecuted church who were poor. They had many of their goods confiscated. But Jesus said in Revelation 2.9, I know your poverty, but actually you're rich. He also says the Laodiceans are blind. They're spiritually blind. They're unable to see the truth. They're unable to understand who Christ really is how needy they really are, since faith, as I've been saying, is the eyesight of the soul. They don't see the invisible spiritual realms properly. They're blind spiritually. And they're naked. They're shameful in their sin patterns. They need a covering. They need an atonement. So then Christ says, this is amazing. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is God the Son. He's saying, can I give you some advice? Oh, 
please give me some advice. Can I give you some advice? I counsel you. I want to give you some counsel. What is the advice? Well, I want you to buy from me some things. Come to me and buy. Jesus is the source of everything that they need. They have greatly underestimated Christ. They've paid him lip service, lukewarm worship, token prayers. It's time they understand they have nothing and Christ has everything. They need to kill forever this repugnant self-reliance and understand that he's the vine and apart from them they're dead. So why does he say to these destitute, spiritual, spiritually empty people, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, they should come to him and buy from him? What currency are they going to use? And I had to wrestle with this exact same idea in Isaiah 55. You remember how beautiful that is? He says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's the same thing. All right, so what's the currency here? The currency is your total emptiness. Bring that. Bring it like a $20 bill or something like that. Say, here's the currency. I have nothing. I'm poor. Could you save me? Could you help me? Could you heal me? That's the currency. That's how you buy from Jesus when you have nothing. And that's not a small thing. Most people are not willing to admit it. They're not willing to look at their resources in their life and say, I really am poor. I really have nothing to offer. But Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with these words. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. Patokos. Have nothing. He uses the same word here. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you'll just bring your nothingness. Bring a big basket of nothingness to Jesus. And hand it to him. Buy. I will give you everything you need. Well, what are you going to buy? Well, I counsel you. To buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you actually can become rich. I think this is like the treasure hidden in the field. This is just the wealth of salvation, the wealth of heavenly joy, the kingdom of heaven. It's just a rich, wealthy, I'm going to give you real gold. And it's going to last for all eternity. I'm going to give you gold that was, that was refined by the fire of my sufferings on the cross. I'm going to give you the free gift of wealth in me. I'm going to make you rich. Secondly, I'm going to give you, if you'll just bring your nothingness to me, I will, you bring your nakedness, I will clothe your shameful nakedness with a white robe. This is a symbol of atonement. It's a symbol, I think, of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. He perfectly obeyed the laws of God. You didn't. He perfectly did. He wove a beautiful white robe of righteousness and he'll just clothe your nakedness with it. Just, just bring your emptiness and he will, he will clothe you with righteousness. And in that righteousness, you'll stand on judgment day. How beautiful is that? And, and thirdly, I counsel you to buy eye salve, some real ointment, so you can actually see. I counsel you to bring your blindness, and I will touch your eyes, like the man born blind in John 9. I will touch your eyes, and you'll be able to see things you've never seen before. I'll give you faith. I'll give you the eyesight of the soul, and that you're going to actually see. You're going to see the glory of God. You're going to see God the King sitting on his throne. You're going to see me at the right hand of God interceding for you. You're going to see me on the cross having atoned for your sins. You're going to see the empty tomb and my bodily resurrection. You're going to see your future glory walking in the new heavens and new earth. You're going to see all kinds of things. You're going to see the present world in its terrible status under Satan's dominion. You're going to see people enslaved in sin. You're going to see real things like they really are. 
the first time. Christ alone can give all these things. John Stott said this. Here is welcome news for blind beggars. They are poor, but Christ has gold. They are naked, but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has eye solved. Let them no longer trust in their banks, their clothing factories, and their eye ointment. Let them come to him. He alone can enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and heal their blindness. He alone can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which they have never dreamed. He can cover their sin and their shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of saints in the kingdom of light. In a word, he can save them. Now in verse 19, this is a timeless word to all genuine believers and to every church. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Christ cherishes us as genuinely born again people. Too much to let us wander off. Now I want you to hold on to this because honestly at the end of the sermon I'm going to say we all have lukewarm days. We really do. We might even have lukewarm weeks. But if Christ is active in your life, he's going to come after you and he's going to get you. And he's going to rebuke you and discipline you if you start drifting into this kind of coldness. And this is actually, though it's a stern word, it's actually comforting to us, isn't it? It shows that we're genuine children, sons and daughters of God. He's going to rebuke you and speak harshly to you when you're sinning. And he's not going to just give you over. He's going to come get you. And then he calls on them. Be earnest and repent. I love that. Uh, let, me, let me put it more in the, the terms of this message. Be on fire and repent. Get some fire inside of you. Get serious about what's going on and repent. And repent means turn away from all these old patterns. Turn away from the sin. See it for what it really is. Grieve over it. Feel ashamed of it and turn and come to the light. Come toward a vigorous walk with Christ. So what does he promise to those who open the door? Well, fellowship and feasting. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, this verse is frequently connected with evangelistic tracts. When I was a new Christian, I was trained by Campus Crusade for Christ to share my faith using a tract called the Four Spiritual Laws. And so Revelation 3.20 is actually one of the first verses I ever heard in my life. It was one of the first verses I memorized. And you use it after doing the God-man-Christ response portion. You've gotten to that and then you want to kind of Seal the deal. You say, okay, Revelation 3.20. Jesus is here. He's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's the door of your heart. And he's knocking on your heart and he wants in. And if you'll just get up and open the door, he will come and live with you forever. Can I tell you, I think that's completely valid. I think that's absolutely something you should say and could say. I don't think you should push it, however, so far into doctrinal error, saying like there's no doorknob on Jesus' side. I've heard the most crazy things about doorknobs. And that only you can open the door and all that. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is moving your arm to get you to open the door. He, you can never get ahead of the Holy Spirit. He, he has made you born again so that you hear his voice and you get up. Spirit's all over that action. That's what regeneration is all about. So enough of that. Don't stop. Stop going that direction. But you can use it in evangelism. And we should use that. The essence of it is a hearing of faith. He who has an ear, let him hear. You're hearing the knocking. You're hearing his voice, but, and you know he's on the outside. You know it. It's a hearing power that only the Holy Spirit can give. And only the Holy Spirit can get you up out of your seat or your bed, your recliner, and get you to walk over and open that door and let Jesus in. 
So open the door. There's an openness to faith. Remember the church of Philadelphia last week? It said, behold, I have set before you an, an open door which no one can shut. But it seems like we set before Jesus a closed door and challenge him to try to pry it open. No, no, open the door to him. Open the door. It's an openness. And that openness is, I want you in here. I want you in my life. I want you in my heart. It's just like when Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is his kingly authority. And to open us up, it's like, I want you, King Jesus, to come in and just rule my life. But Jesus uses an image here of, of eating, of feasting. If you'll just open the door, you're going to sit at table with Jesus. And he somewhat almost belabors the point. I will come in and eat with him. And by the way, he also is going to eat with me. It's like, why did he kind of make it redundant? Because it's intensive here. The repetition's intensive. He wants to feast with you. He wants to sit at table with you. In the ancient Near East, to sit at table with someone, there was, there was an intimate fellowship and friendship, almost like a covenant of breaking bread together. And that's powerful. In John chapter 1, the second day after John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next day, some of John's disciples were with him again, and Jesus walks by again. And John says the same thing. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Two of the disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned around and said, these are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John. What do you want? What are you seeking? And the two disciples said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. It's about 4 in the afternoon. That's a complete head scratcher. Okay? The more you read the Gospel of John, the more you realize he's kept out almost every one of Jesus' miracle stories. He's like trimmed the thing down. He's down to seven miracles and seven extended teachings. And that. How did that make the cut? How was it not on the director's cut? You know, and the, it, was, it was in the Gospel. How did it make it? You know why? One scholar said it's because I think that John, the Apostle John, was one of those two disciples. And that was the first time he ever heard Jesus speak. It was the first time he had Jesus look at him and he sat down and they shared a meal together. And he's going to get that in there in his gospel. Even though he doesn't mention himself by name in the whole gospel. And then at the end, the Last Supper, it's that same one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's laying on Jesus' breast. Remember at the last, what a picture. He puts his head on Jesus' chest and they're, they're so close together. So that's this picture of feasting with Jesus, intimacy, fellowship with him. Are you experiencing that? And we can experience it now by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16 and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. And the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, listen, for he lives with you and will be in you. And so when you open the door of your soul... And Jesus comes in by the Spirit. You can feast with him now in a foretaste of a feasting you're going to have for eternity in heaven. And our fellowship isn't with, the, with Jesus the Son and with the Holy Spirit, but also with the Father. It says in 1 John 1, 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have a fellowship with the triune God. 
How does Christ reward those who overcome? Look at verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Lavish praises. Lavish uh, rewards he gives. In the seven, I like to go through the seven letters and just collect all of the rewards given to him who overcomes and think we're going to get them all. Not just the Ephesian overcomers or the Smyrna overcomers or the Sardis overcomers. I think we are the overcomers. We are more than conquerors. So let's get the whole list. It's like we get to eat from the tree of life and receive a crown of life and be protected from the second death. And we'll get the hidden manna and we'll get a white stone with a new name written on it. And the authority to rule the nations and the morning star and white garments... And the honor of having Christ confess our name before God the Father and the holy angels in heaven. And we'll be made a pillar in the temple. And we'll never leave it. And we'll have written on us the name of God and the name of the new Jerusalem and the name of Christ. And here we get to reign with Christ on his throne. We're going to sit with him in his throne just as he overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. So John the Piper gives us, John Piper gives us uh, this rather... Uh, uh, awkward image, but I I think it's kind of cool, actually. We're in Jesus' lap, and he's in his Father's lap. So, lap in lap. Running the universe. It's awesome. All right, applications. Well, if you are cold, you're outside, you know that you are dead in your transgressions and sins, you know that you are on the outside. You're not a Christian. You're not claiming to be a Christian. I just want to say, you've heard the gospel here today, again, that you are a sinner like all of us. You can't survive Judgment Day on your own. I think what Jesus says to the Laodicean church, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, if you could just see yourself in light of eternity, you'll see that that's true. And here the promise is that Jesus can solve each of those promises, or each of those problems. He can clothe you with garments of righteousness. He can make you eternally wealthy. He can take away the wrath of God and give you eternal life. So trust in him. All you need to do is hear his voice in this sermon. Feel that it's not just the voice of the pastor, but that he is actually urging you to repent of your sins and open your soul to him and allow him to be your king, your ruler, your savior, and he will come and he will eat with you through the Holy Spirit. Now, to you who are already Christians, you come here week after week, your church members maybe, Just beware of lukewarmness. Don't think it'll never happen to you. Maybe you know it already is happening. Now, I believe these people were unregenerate. I'm not saying that you are unregenerate. I'm not saying that all of us go through lukewarm patches. We have a drifting tendency inside us. Just be aware of it. It's not okay to be cool or lukewarm toward Jesus. That's not okay. And you have to fight for it. You have to fight hard. There has to be a passion, a fire, a zeal inside you. So look at, look at your life, you know. Do you have in your private devotional life, is it characterized by fire? Is it characterized by passion? Do you worship Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Making music in your heart to the Lord. Do you, are you thankful for everything in the name of Christ? Do you read the scriptures passionately and personally? Do you feel like God is speaking to you personally when you read the scripture? And is your life then, the outflow of your life, characterized by cheerful, sacrificial service to God and to others? Do you see that in your life? Or, conversely, do you see Christian things and Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance as a burden? Weighs you down, holds you down, holds you back. 
You're not really ready to throw it off yet because you have a tradition and a habit of religion, but honestly, the whole thing doesn't do much for you. What about you? The feeling of confidence that because you're wealthy and successful and healthy, you feel like you don't need anything? Is, Is this going on in your heart? Or is there a passion in your heart toward Christ? It's my duty to stir up your affections as high as I possibly can as a preacher. But can I tell you, my sermons are nowhere near going to be as effective as your sermons to yourself. So just preach to yourself. Why are you so blank, oh my soul? Could be downcast. Why are you so lethargic, oh my soul? Why so listless? Why so cold and distant? Put your hope in God. Like, talk to yourself. Preach sermons to yourself. And I also would commend prayer. Uh, a Norwegian pastor in 1931 named Ole Hallesby, O. Hallesby, wrote a book simply called Prayer. He began his whole book, little, little booklet on prayer, with an exposition of Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He said that this is basically captures the essence of prayer. You're basically opening your nothingness and emptiness and hunger to Christ by opening the door. And you're bringing him into all of that in prayer. He says this, It is not our prayer which draws Jesus into our hearts, nor is it our prayer which moves Jesus Jesus to come into us. All he needs is access. He enters of his own accord because he desires to come in. To pray is nothing more than to open the door and give Jesus access to our needs and our emptiness and permit him to exercise his power in meeting them. That requires no strength. It's just a matter of our wills. Will we give Jesus access to our weakness and needs or not? Start here in your prayer life. One final thing and I'll be done. In the book of Isaiah, we have a picture of Jesus. It's quoted in also Matthew chapter 12, saying of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The smoldering wick is a fire that's just about ready to go out. Jesus has the power to fan it into a flame. Ask him to do it in your life. Close with me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the things we've learned today in Revelation 3. I fear for my own soul. I fear for the church. I fear for individuals that are here. Oh God, deliver us from lukewarmness. Help us to read the scripture passionately. Help us to pray as needy, broken, empty sinners, opening the door to Jesus. Help us to learn to feast with Christ, to realize that we have been enriched with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms and to, and to quote those and to feel that we are rich in Christ and that we're, all of our nakedness has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and to celebrate and to have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Help us to feast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.